We'll begin this evening's talk with a brief overview explanation of the paramis. And then we'll move towards looking more deeply into the parami of generosity, exploring the giving and the receiving that's inherent in this beautiful and essential activity of the mind, the heart, and the body. So the paramis, what are they? Paramis are the forces of purity within the mind, within the heart. The accumulated force of purity. Every mind moment that's clear, free of greed, free of hatred and delusion has a certain purifying force in the ongoing flow of consciousness. Each of us in our long evolutionary process has accumulated many, many of these forces of purity within our own mind, within our own heart. One of the roots of the word parami conveys a sense of supreme quality. Paramita, which is the Sanskrit word, uh, means going toward, going towards something. So going towards supreme quality, going towards perfection. In the Theravada tradition, there are ten paramis uh, to be developed. And in some Buddhist traditions, there are six, just six paramis. So the paramis are this, the ten paramis. Dana, which is generosity. Sila, virtue or ethical behavior. Nekama, which is renunciation. Panya, wisdom. Virya, energy, effort. Kanti, patience. Saka, truthfulness. Aditana, resolution, resolve. Metta, loving kindness and upaka, equanimity. As this accumulation grows, as it strengthens and matures, the accumulation of the factors or the qualities of non-greed, which uh, in the paramis are generosity, renunciation, and patience, and non-hatred, which from the standpoint of the paramis are loving-kindness, truthfulness, and uh, sila, or uh, uh, virtue, morality as it's sometimes translated, and non-delusion, which in the paramis are wisdom, effort, or energy, resolve, and equanimity. So as this accumulation grows and strengthens and matures, the perfections become very forceful and result in all kinds of different forms of happiness, many forms of happiness. Contentment, ease, ease of well-being. And in the most worldly, basic 
sensual pleasures, all the way through to the highest, most refined happiness of the enlightened mind, the enlightened heart. The development, the growth, and the maturation of these perfections, these forces of mind and heart, help to encounter or help to counter the forces that cause human beings such great suffering. Everything occurs, everything happens because of particular causes. Nothing occurs accidentally. The practices that lead towards developing these qualities in our lives, in our mind, they're not to be undervalued. They're not to be scoffed at or maybe thought of as not really so important. That they're not to be thought of as not the real practice. This aspect of training the mind, training the heart, is an essential, powerful, and necessary aspect of our practice. An essential, powerful, and necessary aspect of this process of liberation that we're engaged in. As these qualities grow and deepen and are eventually perfected, They're incredibly powerful causes of all spiritual accomplishment. It's said that the ultimate perfection of the paramis is the perfection of all of the qualities of the mind, of the heart, of a Buddha. The nature of the paramis can be understood as being of two basic aspects. The paramis related to the purity of conduct, of action, our way of being in the world, and the paramis related to the purity of wisdom, of understanding, of insight. In its ordinary, everyday, worldly aspect, and in the deepest liberating wisdom, the wisdom of absolute truth, the wisdom of the insight into the nature of all things. So the paramis of conduct, the paramis of action, the paramis of our way of being in the world are generosity, virtue, renunciation, energy or effort in meditation practice, truthfulness, and resolve to practice. The paramis of wisdom, of insight, of understanding are wisdom, patience, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And of course, all of the paramis are interrelated and so bring each other to light over and over and over again. The development of the paramis, these forces of purity in the mind, are an important aspect of the foundation for the attainment of liberation. This attainment of freedom, to whatever degree, is in part the perfectly natural result of the development of these very strong powers of purity in the mind, in the heart. We could say that the perfection, the attainment of the paramis, 
is the fulfillment of the cause to gain the Dhamma. And Vipassana practice itself, in its process, is the practice and the process of purification, as Sayadaw and I have mentioned a number of times over these past weeks. The path of practice that leads one towards liberation, samatha, vipassana, and other specific practices such as the Brahma-vihara practices, are often called the path of purification. And so the development of the paramis organically, quite naturally, occurs within the context of these practices. In light of moving from an intensive retreat setting into the larger world, and considering that everyday life can be a very potent aspect of one's practice, bringing the paramis more and more to the forefront of one's daily life can be quite helpful and quite fruitful. The paramis, of course, are to be uh, practiced and developed for one's own enlightenment, but also for the benefit of one's family, one's friends, and one's community, and for the benefit of the world. One aspect of the perfection of these qualities of mind and heart is that they're really something to work towards, to practice for, in relationship to benefiting others with no self-interest. The mind, the heart, liberated from all self-centered concern. No greed, no hatred, no delusion. Parami are those who do wholesome deeds with a very genuine and pure motivation to help others and help themselves, as in practicing the Dhamma to gain liberation. And we move towards this little by little by little through our practice. As we practice the Dhamma to gain liberation, it's really quite okay to have self-interest. In pursuing the Dhamma in this way, there's no harm done to others with this wholesome self-interest, we could say. Traditionally, the development and the gaining of the paramis is called the work or the affair of a noble person. And so now uh, moving into exploring the parami of generosity and beginning with the story. Some years ago when I was teaching at the Insight Meditation Society, uh, there were times when I would go to the Cambodian Peace Pagoda, uh, which isn't very far from IMS, uh, to pay a visit to um, my friend, Venerable Mahagosananda. Some of you may have known him. 
or maybe at least uh, know of him. His name uh, translates as Maha, great, and Gosananda, which translates as the sound of bliss. Maha, as he's fondly called, or was fondly called, was from Cambodia and is considered to be the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. He's probably best known for the Dhamma Yatras, the long step-by-step walks for peace that he led through the Cambodian countryside, the villages and the refugee camps during the um, Vietnam War. Maha died uh, some years ago, a few years ago, at approximately 94 years old. He didn't actually know how old he was exactly. He'd been a monk for about 80 years since he was 14 years old. Venerable Gosananda was an incredibly glowing and energetically light human being. He felt like one of the purest and one of the lightest beings that I'd ever encountered. So simple, so unpretentious, so rare really. A being with a truly unfettered mind and a pure heart. A few years before Maha's passing, I had the great honor and great joy of teaching a three-day retreat with him in Crestone, Colorado. And during that time, uh, a very sweet and deep connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat was to begin, I was taken to, into his quarters to say hello. And we really didn't know each other very well, and we hadn't seen each other for about a year. So I didn't know if he would remember me. And being such an old man, uh, there were many things actually that he didn't remember anymore. So I recalled to him the last time that we had met, and then I asked him if he remembered me. And he said, oh yes, I remember your nose. (laughs) And I burst out laughing, (laughs) as I do every time I recall this, and said, well, it must be quite a nose. (laughs) And he said, very directly looking at me and very sweetly, he said, he responded, it's a good nose. During a three-month retreat that I was teaching at IMS that was, uh, took place not too long after the Colorado retreat that I uh, taught with Venerable Gosananda, I went to visit him at the Cambodian Peace Pagoda. And I felt like I was uh, going to see my, my Dhamma grandfather, who actually used to call me Mum. And at one point I asked him uh, why he called me Mum when in fact he was so much uh, older than I am, than I was. And he responded saying, uh, we have all been each other's mother at some point, and so your mom. (laughs) So mom and grandfather sat and drank tea that day, and we laughed uh, some and talked a little bit of history about his life and talked about the three-month retreat that I was teaching and how everyone was so diligently practicing. But mostly we talked Buddha Dhamma, which was, of course, Venerable Gosananda's favorite topic. 
Being with Venerable Mahagosananda was always a most precious gift that opened and lightened the heart, opened and lightened the mind. A gift he so selflessly offered simply through being, or maybe more accurately, a gift he offered in just simply being. And I found it quite amazing and surprising that when I was with him and afterwards, my heart felt like it filled up my whole body and my whole being and then on outward. An experience, in fact, that would always continue on beyond our time together. When I left the Cambodian temple that day, to my total surprise, two monks and one of the nuns that lived there uh, at the Pagoda, Peace Pagoda uh, filled my back, the back seat of my car with large bags of Thai rice and uh, tins of jasmine tea and sacks of sugar for me to take back to the three-month yogis. They wanted to offer gifts of support because they were so happy that people were practicing the Dhamma. So, as I said, this evening we'll explore generosity. This quality holding a special place and opportunity for us in our formal practice and in our life as our practice. And particularly now, as you'll soon be taking your practice out of the retreat setting and into the world of your daily life. And of course, one of the most profound acts of generosity occurred over 2,500 years ago when Gautama Buddha, directly out of his own experience, offered the teachings and the practices of liberation from suffering. And it's because of the Buddha's mind and heart of boundless generosity and great compassion that we're sitting here together this evening. And so moving from a recent story regarding Venerable Mahagosananda to an old story, an ancient Buddhist legend, a a tale that displays a number of paramis, in particular generosity, along with virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, effort, and resolve. And this particular uh, telling of this tale is adapted uh, from the tale as told by Rafe Martin. It said that many Maha Kalpas and world cycles ago, before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, came to be, another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was to pay a visit to the small village of Amaravati in India and offer an evening of public talks, revealing the Dhamma. The villagers were very excited and felt deeply honored. So to show their uh, great respect for the Buddha Dipankara, they decided to level out the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk on through their village and then cover it with very fine cloth. In the forest just outside this village of Amaravati lived a young man who was blessed with much goodness, 
physical beauty, intelligence, friendliness, kindness, and much virtue and vigor. He was the hermit Sumedha, who was in a much later life to be the future Buddha, our Buddha. Sumedha's parents, wealthy Brahmins, had died a few years before this story takes place, leaving him with seven generations of accumulated property and wealth. It's said that young Sumedha thought, my family has amassed much wealth, yet neither my parents nor any of my ancestors were able to take it with them upon leaving this world. What's the point of amassing more? One day I too will die. And as there's a road that leads beyond suffering in this world, should I just remain idle? No, I'll leave this sheltered life, become an ascetic, and find the way. So he announced his intention to the king and gave all of his money to the poor and entered into the forest life as a hermit, eating wild fruit, wearing clothes of bark, and letting his hair grow long and matted. And he practiced energetically, whether standing, sitting, or lying down. And within a short time, he gained a profound insight into the true nature of things and bore a very bright wisdom which was never to be dimmed. He sat for many days blissfully absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day of Dipankara's visit to the village of Amravati, Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation by all of the excitement and all of the activity in the village. It's said that Seated cross-legged, he rose up into the air and flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all the excitement? Why are you working in the midday heat? Why is the road being leveled and covered with golden cloth? Venerable Sumedha, the workman replied, Don't you know? The Buddha Dipankara is approaching the village. Well, Sumedha's heart leapt with joy. A Buddha, he thought. Rare is it we're ever even able to hear the word Buddha. Rare is it beyond all comprehending to meet such a realized one. So he immediately came down from his airy perch (laughs) and offered to help the workman on the road. And he picked a particularly swampy, low stretch of ground to fill. He worked with his heart and his mind, filled with light and joy, and repeating to himself over and over again, a Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to finish the task, he heard exquisite music and saw enchanting and saw flowers being tossed in the air. The Buddha Dipankara was approaching. It said that Sumedha saw saw multi-hued rays of light extending from the Buddha Dipankara and a great soft golden glow surrounding him. And then he thought, here's one who has attained all wisdom. Here's one who's free from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion. One in whom all goodness has been realized. 
I shall make an offering to the Buddha Dipankara in honor of all that he is. So, Sumedha spread his bark cloth cape over the soft wet ground and then he lay down on top of it and loosening and spreading his long matted hair he made a passage of himself for the Buddha Dipankara to walk on over the mud. And then he thought, like the Buddha Dipankara, I want to help all beings. I'm determined. Despite all the difficulties and danger, I'll never turn back. I'm resolved to attain what the Buddha Dipankara has attained and benefit all beings. The next moment, the Buddha Dipankara arrived at that very spot. And looking down at Sumedha, he knew this hermit has made the resolve to be a Buddha. He will be successful. In many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, he'll become a fully realized one, an awakened one, a Buddha, and his name will be Gautama. And out loud, Surrounded by hundreds of people, monks, nuns, laywomen, men, and children, the Buddha Dipankara stated, in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, this hermit lying here will fulfill his great vow. He will be a Buddha named Gautama. And when he becomes a young man, he'll see the four signs, old age, sickness, death, and a monk and he'll leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths. After great exertions and near death, he'll, resolve, he'll receive a life-saving meal of rice milk. And then with renewed strength and energy, he'll go to the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down, and continuing his effort with great diligence, he'll attain supreme Buddhahood. Well, as you can imagine, a Sumedha lying there in the mud <laughs> became delirious with joy. My deepest wish shall be attained. I shall be a Buddha. So the next moment, the hermit Sumedha put his palms together, honoring the Buddha Dipankara, who did the same in return to the Bodhisatta and then continued on his way through the village accompanied by hundreds of followers from all walks of life. The Bodhisatta Sumedha arose from his bed of compassionate generosity, filled with joy and strength of purpose. And it's said that he rose up into the air and returned to his forest retreat where he remained practicing very hard, very diligently towards his goal. Generosity. Generosity deepening as a quality of being. Generosity as a practice. We usually think of it as the practice of offering, but in its fullness, it's really both offering and receiving, a process which clearly helps and transforms the contraction of separateness engendered by self-centeredness. 
the development and deepening of the heart quality of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of greed and clinging, stinginess, hoarding, and saving. The development and deepening of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of the fear and the attachment that are so closely linked to the energies of resistance and greed. Generosity, a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness and universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues. We offer, we give help, we receive the seamless circle. Just as the Bodhisattva Sumedha so diligently and deeply practiced, cultivated and manifested generosity, we also cultivate and manifest it in a thousand different ways, no matter our culture, our age, no matter who we are. I'm weeding and planting on my garden early one summer morning many years ago. And my four and a half year old son wanders over to my work area and with a very big and very bright smile on his face thrusts a bunch of bright yellow dandelions at me. And I receive them with delight and heartfelt gratitude. I happened to be in China during my 46th birthday. The friend that I was traveling with and I were staying in Shanghai in a two-room apartment with the Chinese family. These people were good friends of my friend. The 20-year-old daughter of the family had admired my favorite bracelet that I was wearing. And I'd learned that uh, in China, the custom is to give gifts on one's birthday. So, in the midst of experiencing uh, some degree of attachment, (laughs) I decided to give my favorite bracelet to this young woman for my birthday. Though actually feeling a bit uh, like a one-handed giver uh, during my consideration of doing this. And then finally uh, deciding to do it, though when the time came to actually give her the gift, it was with both hands and with an open heart. It was really a joy at that point. Though in the process of getting there, it was very much a practice of generosity for me. A friend waited some years for all of the conditions to come together to allow her to sit a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society. And finally they do. They All the conditions come together. But one week before the retreat begins, she calls me to tell me that she's given her spot up. Because a very dear friend of hers who was dying of cancer had asked if she might consider being her caretaker. A young cab driver in Thailand and I have an inspiring conversation about Buddhism. 
And just as I'm getting out of his taxi, he takes the small bronze statue of his beloved teacher off the dashboard of his car and hands it to me. And I hesitate momentarily, not sure how to or even if I can receive this gift. And then my heart just simply opens and it's easy to accept this purity of generosity. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family. There are delicious foods and beautiful clothing and blankets close to the child. After eating and drinking her fill and exploring the clothing and the blankets, a voice from outside the circle calls, I'm hungry. Another voice, I'm thirsty. Another voice, I'm cold. And the child is led out of the circle to share food and drink with the hungry and the thirsty and blankets with the cold one. A ceremony, a training, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. I'm attempting to feed my seven-month-old granddaughter and she picks up a piece of banana and very delightedly pushes it into my mouth. A number of summers ago, forest fires raged in the Los Alamos Española area here in New Mexico. Hundreds of individuals and families were evacuated from their homes. And almost immediately, there was an enormous outpouring of generosity coming from miles around. Clothing, food, all of the ordinary daily life needs, and offers of housing. So much offered freely that at some point we were told to, that it was time to stop giving. The needs of all of those suffering because of the fires had been met with great abundance. And as I'm sure you remember, the incredible outpouring of compassionate generosity on many levels after the September 11th tragedy, and in response to the tsunami, and in relationship to the hurricanes here in our southern states. The incredible outpouring of generosity offered in so many ways, people to people. At some point along the way of your life, along the way of your practice, you decide that you want to sit this retreat. And all of the t conditions come together. And so you both give the gift of this precious time to yourself and receive the gift day by day as the retreat unfolds. And maybe at some point during this retreat, you're moving ever so slowly. And you don't feel pushed. You don't feel hurried by anyone to speed up. Another gift given and received. Just for a moment, imagine yourself standing outside your home each morning holding a large bowl of food. 
A line of saffron-robed monks are moving slowly, gracefully down the road, each of them holding a round begging bowl. And as they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl and put it into each of the monks' bowls. Imagine yourself as a child, standing with your mother or your father or an older sister or older brother and seeing this ritual, this offering each morning, taking in the power of the generous heart so clearly present in this daily practice, taking in the joy and the genuine happiness that's quite apparent in this purity of giving. The benefits of generosity are easily learned each day. They simply become a natural part of your life. The Buddha taught, if you knew what I knew about generosity, you wouldn't let one meal go by without sharing it. The Buddha and his nuns and monks all lived in the same simple way, making alms rounds each day for their sustenance. The Buddha taught and lived what is really a way of life. And in speaking to his Sangha, he said, Thus you must train yourselves. We will be thankful and grateful. Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. Giving and receiving. Generosity, the practice of the heart. Most of us here in this Western world don't have this kind of daily experience, this reminder. The monastic training of the begging bowl isn't uh, very easily available in this country, which, at least in part, is the training, the cultivation of renunciation, gratitude, and the understanding of interdependence that's directly related to the process of simply receiving what's offered in support of a way of life. Nor do we very often at all engage from the other side in offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance. And through that process, reap the, reaping the wholesome benefits of cultivating a light, joyous, and generous heart. Rather, our culture encourages us to yearn for, thirst for, to acquire and accumulate, and then to fixate and cling to our accumulations, material accumulations and the accumulation of ideas, opinions, and views that support this whole materialistic culture. And then in turn, we're deeply conditioned by this process to identify ourselves outwardly and inwardly through all of our accumulations, material and otherwise, to think, feel, and project that this is who we are. In light of this very pervasive and 
quite sticky conditioning. I think that it takes a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing and knowing the truth of ourselves, the truth of all things underneath and beyond all of this training, this conditioning of attachment, clinging, and identification. I'd like to share uh, a poem that speaks of this in its own way uh, called Kindness. It's a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye from a book called Different Ways to Pray. And it was written in uh, Columbia in 1978. Before you know what kindness is, you must lose everything. Feel the past and the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened bra. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passenger e- passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say, it is you I have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. We don't really have anything truly integrated into our culture that teaches and deepens us into living with the truth of interconnectedness. interconnectedness and the essential emptiness of all accumulation. I think that as a culture there's a deep and really quite a profound loss in this lack. The practice, the development of the heart of generosity is the seed, the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of love, compassion and joy. It's a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As practice develops and our discerning capacity grows, the mind, the heart, learns to see and to know the ephemeral, the changing nature of all things. In relationship to the everyday mundane world, what we think is ours today could very well be gone tomorrow or may seemingly belong to someone else next week. Maybe even in this retreat, my spot in the meditation hall or my seat in the dining room or my walking path 
what in this world really belongs to us? What can we really possess? Is there anything that really has any hard and fast owners? Everything, everything changes hands or just simply dissolves, as you are seeing over and over and over again. When we begin to touch this truth, it can be a powerful factor that inclines us towards cultivating our inner wealth. The inner wealth of qualities such as generosity, compassion, concentration, mindfulness, patience, loving-kindness, joy, equanimity. An inner wealth of generosity is a powerful medicine. It's an antidote to the anguish and confusion that's generated through the conditioning, through the training of accumulating and then fixating on and identifying with it all. All of the mental and material accumulations. Generosity is a natural, healthy, awakened response to the deepening understanding that there's nothing that can be held on to in this constantly changing world. Our inner wealth of generosity is a wealth that can never be depleted, a gift that can actually forever be given. And it's a seamless circle. It feeds itself, it grows itself. And so from this perspective, as the Buddha tells us, the greatest gift is in the act of giving itself. Traditionally in the Buddhist teachings, there are three, three kinds of, of giving are spoken of. There is what could be called beggarly giving. And that's when we give with only one hand, so to say. Still kind of holding on uh, with the other hand, maybe, uh, to what we give. It's, it's still mine. How I first uh, began giving my young Chinese friend my bracelet. It's in, uh, in this kind of giving, we might in give the least of what we have. And then afterwards, we might even wonder whether we should have given at all. The second kind of giving is what could be called friendly giving. And so we give open-handedly, with both hands. We share what we have because it feels natural and, and appropriate to do so. It's a clear giving. And then there's what is called queenly or kingly giving. And this is when we give the best of what we have, even if nothing remains for ourselves. We give instinctively. We give graciously. We, in fact, know ourselves to be only temporary caretakers of what has been provided. We know ourselves as really owning nothing. So in this, there's no giving. There's just the spaciousness which allows objects and our caring heart to remain in the very natural flow of life. This is really the true heart of generosity. A wonderful metaphor that's used in teaching at times for this is uh, the moon shining in the sky while its image is reflected in every drop of water on this earth. 
the moon doesn't demand if you open to me I'll do you a favor and shine on you or shine in you the moon just shines the point is not to want to benefit anyone or to make them happy and there's no audience involved no one to impress no one to please no one to show there's no me no you no them it's really a matter of an open gift complete generosity without the relative notions of giving and receiving there's nothing to be held on to in this knowing of the perfectly natural empty flow of life in understanding the way of things the heart of generosity quite naturally blossoms and some words in relationship to this from Desmond Tutu from South Africa Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English we call it ubuntu boto it means the essence of being human you know when it's there and you know when it's absent it speaks about humanness gentleness generosity hospitality putting yourself out on the behalf of others being vulnerable it embraces compassion and toughness it recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours for we can only be human together and as you well know we don't always live with this purity and completeness of queenly or kingly generosity this is at least in part why we're here one of the reasons why we practice something that i think is important to remember throughout our practice is to remember to be honest with yourself to honor and respect your capacity of heart at any given point along the way and not pretend anything to yourself or to others by imitating or acting out of some idealized image of what you might that you might have of a generous compassionate loving person it's very important to recognize and to honor and to respect your limits along the way and come from a very genuine place of heart i had quite a strong lesson uh regarding this about 20 years ago my mother uh, had uh incurred a very uh a deep injury in her leg which uh, turned into a a, a very deep infection with a potential hospitalization and the doctor told us that if she wasn't going to be if we didn't want her to be hospitalized which she didn't want to happen the wound would need to be cleaned daily and it was down to the bone that it needed to be cleaned and my brother and sister-in-law and I received this information in person and nobody nobody immediately volunteered to do the work to do the cleaning Uh, so i stepped up and said i would do it there was a little bit of compassionate generosity there but it wasn't full and deep 
generosity. I didn't want my mother to go to the hospital, so I volunteered. Not with a completely open heart, which should have been my first clue about what was about to happen. But <laughs> and I did, did what needed to be done. Uh, and at first, the first days of it, um, a fair amount of aversion would come up. I would feel angry at my mother for falling down first. That's how the wound occurred. And then for not taking care of herself properly afterwards. And now, look what I have to do. Her pain was quite uh, intense when I would be cleaning the wound. And uh, it was hard, very difficult for me at times to be with that pain. To open to it, to hear her uh, suffering. The wound had quite a strong smell. I had quite a strong aversion to the smell. And then at one point it came up, she's the mom, I'm the child. What am I doing? What's happening here? (laughs) And all the time, her enormous gratitude was very apparent, offered, every day, which was amazing. And slowly, slowly, my gratitude in seeing all of these, because of my practice, really, gratitude for the practice and being able to see all of these mind states changing, coming and going, and feeling really tremendous gratitude for the practice after a few days. And a bond was created between my mother and I, and old roles were bridged and let go of in this process. But it was a, a, a strong practice for me, a strong lesson. Sometimes we might think that we're acting out of generosity, acting out of unconditional love or compassion, when in fact we might be acting out of fear of loss or fear of disapproval or fear of some degree of harsh verbal or physical reaction from someone. Or we may give from the place of trying to avoid dealing from with a dealing directly with a particular person or dealing directly with a particular situation. Giving in this way actually perpetuates fear, perpetuates delusion, strengthening the closed heart of self-centeredness and the disconnection which causes continued suffering in ourself and maybe also in the other person. And we may be creating what in modern language is called a codependency. Rather than cultivating the truth of a very healthy and vital connection to others and the unfolding of the wisdom of interconnectedness and not self, that the quality of a true generosity very naturally springs from. It may be that you have maybe a strong sense of inner need maybe not feeling whole, not feeling what we could call ontologically whole, meaning not intuitively feeling a very simple okayness about being here, a simple okayness about being alive in this life, just simply because here we are, alive in this life. Without this, we may experience some degree of a pervasive undifferentiated feeling of disconnection 
a feeling of separateness, a feeling of an inner lack. If we don't yet feel the strength within us of wholeness and abundance, this really must be respected. Otherwise, giving and caring may be done from, with a subtle or uh, often unconscious sense of getting something in return. When our heart hasn't yet healed from the learned, from the conditioned feelings of lack, there may be some misunderstanding in relationship to the truth of generosity. We may give ourselves away or lose ourselves in an unhealthy way, in what seems like generous support, but which may actually be unskillful support, unskillful giving in relationship to others. And when this happens, we actually feel less whole, more depleted, weaker, which may be accompanied by a lack of awareness and ignorance of the real needs of others, or a lack of awareness, ignorance of our own needs. It's important to understand, respect, and honor in ourselves and in others that the wisdom of a true and deep generosity develops and matures gradually. And also to recognize and to remember that our limits keep changing. Wholesome mind states and one's heartful capacities manifest more and more often as we continue to practice. In relationship to this on the scale of our work in the world, Thomas Merton wrote this. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. And as a counterbalance to this, some words from Ralph Waldo Emerson. To laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to be successful. It's our inalienable right to feel complete, connected, to feel ontologically okay. That simple, direct okayness in being here, alive on the planet, simply just because we are here. It's our inalienable right to know this is enough. It's just enough. No less, no more. Just like a tree, a, a cricket, another human being, a cactus, a butterfly, a snake, grass, a rainbow. 
the inclination to intuitively feel and know one's completeness, which is naturally inherent on the relative level of life and includes our, includes our intuitive understanding of the interconnected, interconnectedness or interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it, of all things. And the inclination to feel and manifest the generosity and compassion that naturally springs from this are perfectly natural inclinations. And the inclination to touch and to know the freedom that's naturally inherent in deeply understanding the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self nature of all things is a perfectly natural inclination. I think that for many of us, at least one or maybe all of these natural intuitive inclinations are the deepest reasons that we're drawn to practice. There's a practice that uh, a Tibetan teacher once told me about. A very basic practice for people who are extremely stingy, miserly people. People who sometimes, in fact, identify themselves as being fiercely independent. (laughs) And this sort of person often has trouble giving even to themselves. And might not be able to ask Uh, ask for help or uh, to receive it graciously even if it's offered. Receiving help, gifts, praise, even love can be difficult for people like this. They may not have the open-heartedness to give or to receive with gratitude, joy, appreciation, kindness, even if they're physically ill or distressed emotionally. So the practice is to take something very ordinary, something that one might not think of as being particularly valuable, maybe a potato or a turnip, and you hold it in one hand, and then you pass it to the other hand, and then you pass it back and forth, from hand to hand, back and forth, until it gets easy. And then there are the higher practices. If one's motivated, if one's inclined to continue the practice of generosity, one moves on to seemingly more valuable objects, either metaphorically or literally. And, and the giving symbolically develops into letting go of, re- relinquishing, uh, offering everything all of the accumulations, the outer material accumulations and the inner accumulations of habits, preferences, ideas, beliefs, etc. And one is even encouraged to relinquish the secret holdings. In its final stage, the practice is done ideally with a mound of precious jewels that are symbolically offered over and over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, to the Sangha, 
and to all beings everywhere. At one point I did this practice, but instead of precious jewels, rice was the offering, which actually seemed quite appropriate. And this is really what we're doing in our practice here, without the paraphernalia. Learning to give and learning to receive. Letting go of control and receiving what's given. Receiving each moment of our life just as it is, whether pleasant or unpleasant with the trust that it's just right, just enough for our spiritual growth to unfold from. We can give ourselves the gift of truly learning to be in the present moment with a kind and an open heart, with a clear and a focused mindful attention, receiving the present moment just as it is with gratitude, with appreciation, humility, and equanimity. With unconditional acceptance, we're learning to apply the wise and careful attention of mindful awareness in the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation that moves through our body, to any task we might be engaged in to the experience of the breath all the way from its birth all the way through to its death. Like the Bodhisattva Sumedha who with such great dedication and open-heartedness practiced and learned we too are learning to receive life fully be kind grateful, generous, knowing that this very life is our path. This very life is the path to the deepest ease of well-being and joy. We too are learning that this very life is our path to liberation and that our liberation is intimately connected to the development of a deep generosity of heart. Someone once asked Gandhi, uh, a bodhisattva of our time, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all these people? And maybe surprisingly, Gandhi answered, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. In truth, the aim, the fruit of generosity is twofold. We give to help others and to free others. We give to help and to free ourselves. This is the fullness, the seamless circle of generosity. And through our practice, the energy of it grows and flows within us and from us. And we begin to know it and to live it quite naturally as who we are. I'm closing the, uh, the talk this evening with another story. 
about 26 uh, years ago, along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher named Wallace Black Elk. In those years, he would come once or twice a year to the area in Michigan uh, where I lived to teach us. And one particular year, I invited him to come and stay at my house. It was a very small, uh, very old five-room log house out in the Michigan woods. At that point, uh, two of us, one of my sons and I, were living there. The summer afternoon of Wallace's arrival came. An old, well-used, smallish car pulled up into the driveway. And Wallace was the first one to get out. And he's quite a, a big man. He's about six foot three or four inches and big boned. And he looked even bigger uh, with his cowboy boots and his tall cowboy hat on. And then it was like one of those uh, cars in the circus when a car pulls up in the center ring and the doors open and people just keep pouring out. And you're amazed at how many people can fit into such a small car. <laughs> So as we watched, seven people emerged from this little old car. All of Wallace's helpers and some members of his family. It turned out that there were 11 people living in our house during a 10-day period. This was a little house. <laughs> and my thought was, well, how will we all live and how will we all sleep in this tiny house? Well, the place just seemed to expand. People were sleeping everywhere. Food arrived. People would drop by in the afternoon to meet with and to listen to Wallace as he talked and shared his earth wisdom. At night, Wallace and his extended family led ceremonies and practices in the sweat lodge down the road at the ecology center, usually until about 12.30 in the morning night, morning. And then at 12.30 or 1 a.m., it was time for a big dinner because there were no meals taken uh, through the whole afternoon or evening before the sweat lodge ceremonies. And we weren't on eight precepts. But <laughs> we started the day very late because during those 10 days, uh, or not because, but during those 10 days, I had to let go of many of my preferences many of my habits, how I use the various spaces of my house, my usual schedule, the rhythm of my life, my food preferences, and many other preferences. Wallace and one of the members of his family continuously smoked cigarettes in my no-smoking house. <laughs> we couldn't ask them to go outside or they would have hardly been in, inside the house. People, as I mentioned, people slept all over the house. And as I, the day began quite late in the morning because of the very late night sweat lodge ceremonies. 1 a.m. was dinner time, as I mentioned. Each afternoon the house was filled with many people. Sometimes 15 or 20 people would come by to listen to Wallace as he shared teachings in a very casual, conversational way. And somehow there was always enough food. We'd come back from the sweats at night, early in the morning, and there were bowls of food at the door, or bowls of food left on the kitchen counter. 
and often a friend and I would be cooking up something at 12 or 1 in the morning for our main meal of the day. There was always plenty of food and always enough space. The last night of this 10-day period, Wallace and friends said that they wanted to do a ceremony, a gratitude ceremony in our living room for my son and I. We all sat together in a circle, and each one of us was asked to share, offer some words from our heart in relationship to our 10 days together. And then they gave my son and I beautiful treasures that they'd brought with them in gratitude for sharing our space, sharing our time and our energy with them. And then Wallace spoke. He said, if one shares from the heart, shares material possessions, there will always be enough, abundance. If one shares one's space and time and energy, he said in these He said it's an open flow, an open-ended flow. There's no boundary, no frame on what's available in these areas. And then he said if one shares from the heart, it's in this that one receives everything. Simply in the giving, there's abundance. When everyone left the next day, in seeing them off, my husband and I, or my husband, my son, excuse me, my son and I stood outside watching them all getting back into this old car. It was kind of like watching a movie playing backwards. And then the two of us walked back into the house and stood there in amazement. The great expanse of the house, holding all of the people, all of the activity, all of the energy for those days. When we walked back inside after everyone had left, it seemed that our house had shrunk. And yet somehow internally we felt expanded, quite expanded. The powerful medicine of generosity. A greatness of heart grows through our practice. It grows and flows within us as naturally as the rivers flow in this world. As our mind opens, seeing and knowing more and more clearly, wisdom deepens and matures, and there's an easing of the constrictive thoughts, words, and actions of self-centeredness. We find that more and more ease joy and peace shows up in our experience in relationship to this life. In closing the talk with some words from an American astronaut, Russell Swikart. This comes from a book uh, of, which I don't think is in print anymore, uh, of photos and uh, quotes from uh, astronauts all over the world. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with the window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. 
There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others can't have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're the sensing element for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there. And they are like you. They are you. And somehow you represent them. You're up here as the sensing element, that point out on the end. And that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not for yourself. The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship to this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference and it's so precious. And let's sit together for just quietly for just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.